Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 32 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Led by the Spirit to Philippi, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 15. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, we're going to see the activity of the Holy Spirit uh, in guiding Paul and Silas to cross over from Asia, Asia Minor, uh, to Europe to go in a westward direction. And in a larger sense, we're going to see the strategic leadership of the Spirit in spreading the gospel from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The Spirit has a plan, and the Spirit is effective in guiding and positioning his servants to exactly where he wants them to be. So that's going to be an exciting study today. Well, let me go ahead and read Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 15. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Andy, the general movement of Paul and his companions is northeastward through modern Turkey. Hmm. They tried to go eastward toward Asia, but the Holy Spirit stopped them. Why do you think the Spirit forbid them from preaching the word in Asia? Well, we really can't know the answer to that question. We know that God does have a plan for the peoples uh, all over the world, peoples from every tribe and language, people and nation. Uh, Every geographical region will, in fact, hear the gospel at some point. Uh, We also know across the generations, as century after century moves on, that sometimes the center of of glowing gospel witness moves from some places to other places. It just continually moves. And I think John 3, Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. You cannot tell where it comes from and where it is going. So it is with uh, those born of the Spirit, and I would say also so it is with the movement of the Spirit. So you can have the glowing center of Christianity being first Jerusalem and then Antioch, 
and then maybe it moves uh, to other places in due time. Maybe uh, Alexandria, um, you know, maybe a century or so after Jesus, or or Rome itself for a while, maybe, or or Constantinople for a while could be, uh, you know, moving much further ahead, uh, Geneva, or before that, uh, where Augustine was in North Africa. You know, someone actually, a scholar once called the uh, North Africa the Bible Belt of the ancient world. Hmm. So uh, where Augustine was in North Africa and all that, that's where a, a great concentration of Christians. And yet it just keeps moving. And so the Spirit has his own purposes. The Spirit has his own reasons. But at this particular point, to focus on Acts 16, he blocks them. He doesn't want them going east. He wants them to move west toward Greece, and he has his own purposes uh, toward that. And again, I don't know why. It's not like these people are better or more important than those people. It's just he has a strategy as a pattern. And so um, the Spirit definitely intervenes and blocks them and keeps them from going east. What more can we learn from verse 6 about the Spirit's sovereignty over the gospel and over salvation? And mm -hmm. how do we account for the Spirit's prohibition? Well, first of all, there is a mystery here in how Paul knew that the Spirit was telling them not to preach the gospel in a certain area. Was it providential things? Door, we frequently talk about doors opening and closing. Uh, Paul himself says a great door of ministry has opened for me in Corinth. And so you can see just indications in in space and time, indications in what's actually happening on a, on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, what's occurring with the people. Um, interestingly, and I just looked at this before we, we started today, um, this passage that Paul uh, gives us in 1 Thessalonians 2, he said, but brothers, the Thessalonian church, when we we're torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every, every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you, Thessalonica. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. Mm. So <laughs> how do you know when Satan's stopping you or when the Spirit's preventing you or, or if it's just an obstacle you need to overcome, I have to say these are the mysteries of providence. We don't really know. So what specifically happened here in Acts 16 to tell Paul that the Spirit did not want them to preach in the province of Asia? I do not know. But they were moving and they got to this place and they're being positioned. Now, as it turns out, uh, he's going to have a vision. We'll get to that. But he's definitely being led or guided by the Spirit. I often think about what it says in the book of Isaiah, where it says, uh, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. So I can imagine that's a, a picture of the Spirit's leadership or guidance. Them saying, Lord, lead us where you want us to go. Mm. We can't be everywhere at once. Where would it be most strategic for us to preach the gospel? And the Spirit is leading. Which is instructive for us as well to be mindful in our own day, how we are being sensitive to and listening for the Holy Spirit to guide us as we obey God and what he's called us to do. Uh, Troas was a port city just across the Aegean Sea from Greece, and the Spirit had essentially boxed them in, and they're waiting mm -hmm. on him for guidance. Mm -hmm. How did that guidance come? Yeah, I like what you said, the Spirit boxing them in. Um, verse 6, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in Asia. Verse 7, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So that's what my translation says. So that's that's the boxing in here. You know, you think about what uh, Satan complained uh, to God saying uh, that you've put a hedge of protection around Job and everything he has. I can't get at him. So the spirit kind of 
does the same thing with the people of God, blocking them, preventing them, you know, stopping them because he, he wants them not to go right or to go left metaphorically. And so he, he boxes them in. But, but uh, now they go down to Troas and they're just waiting to find out what's next. And so that's when the vision comes of a man of Macedonia. What kind of help did that man from Macedonia ask for? Okay, so Paul had a vision, um, and we need to understand what that means. So the the history of prophecy in the Bible includes visions. And so the Lord would speak to the prophets of old, giving them visions. Very clear example of this is in the book of Ezekiel, where he again and again has very vivid uh, visions uh, showing him as a prophet, the wickedness, the specific sins of the elders of Israel and of Judah, of things that were going on in secret, um, or different other aspects, visions of Almighty God and His glory. That was the first vision he had. And so the Lord is able to speak through visions to the prophets and here now to the Apostle Paul. And so he has a vision. And what does he see? A man, a man of Macedonia, how do we know that he's of Macedonia? Well, how do you know things in a dream? You just know hmm. uh, this person is from this or that place. You just know. Um, or maybe had a characteristic cultural um, garb or attire of Macedonia. Now, what is Macedonia? It's a, the part of Greece, the Greek uh, peninsula, very uh, very much to the north. It's uh, There's a whole country now called Macedonia that broke off from Greece. And uh, we also know Macedonia is the home of Alexander the Great, uh, the most significant figure of the ancient world of that time. Uh, it's the reason why uh, Paul and so many other Jews spoke Greek, why Paul wrote his epistles in Greek, why Luke is writing here in Greek, because of the conquest of Alexander the Great, and he came from Macedonia. And so here's this individual, um, this uh, symbolic man of Macedonia, and it's interesting because I can't imagine Alexander the Great ever saying, come and help us. Hmm. You know, we're in a needy position. Uh, they were world conquerors. The Macedonians conquered the world. They were the most powerful people on earth for a while before the Romans came and, and supplanted them. They had conquered the entire Persian Empire. Uh, they were mighty and powerful. But this man of Macedonia uh, is entreating or begging Paul to bring the gospel to them. And so the idea is, however powerful we may have been in the past politically, or even are powerful now politically, we are needy. We know that we stand in judgment uh, before the throne of Almighty God. We need help. And so the help that he's seeking in the vision is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What conclusion did Paul and his companions come to after the vision? And why did the vision come only to Paul and not to all of them? Yeah, so uh, I want to say also something historically. My home state is the state of Massachusetts, and for many years, based on the Puritan heritage, New England Puritan heritage of the of the state of Massachusetts, the colony uh, that became Massachusetts, the state of Massachusetts, uh, they had a seal of um, of a Native American, an indigenous person, standing in indigenous garb, with this exact statement: "Come over and help us." Hmm. And so it's definitely a biblical idea. And the concept uh, that the Puritans had of coming over from England to America was to witness to the indigenous population. One of the first um, missionaries uh, 
John Eliot, one of the first uh, books ever written in uh, the colonies was a translation of the Bible into a Native American language. And so they really saw themselves as missionaries to the Native American population, come over and help us. And this was effectively quoting this Macedonian call. Now, the vision came to Paul because he was the leader of the group, uh, the apostle. And so um, Paul related the vision and they understood how the Lord spoke to Paul in visions, and Paul uh, communicated it, and they understood the, that it was guidance from the Holy Spirit that they were now to go over to Macedonia and preach the gospel. What is the significance of the subtle change in grammar between verses 6 through 8 and what we see in verse 10? Well, the big difference um, is the word we. The word we, so the the first person plural, and so the author of the book of Acts, who we know is Luke, is now joining the group. So um, up till then, it's been they and they, and then they they did this, they did that, and then now in verse ten, it says we. So uh, from this point on, Luke is a personal companion, mm-hmm. and he is an eyewitness of the things that went on. Now, navigation was notoriously difficult in Paul's day, and ships tried to stay close to the shoreline as much as they were able. What do we learn about this voyage from verse 11? Well, here they're going straight out um, across the sea to um, Samothrace and then to Neapolis. So they are there. It's it's a riskier voyage, and they are entrusting in God's uh, protection, and they're going straight there so that they can um, they can end up at Philippi and preach the gospel there. Philippi was the leading city of the region of Macedonia, as Antioch was the leading city of the Eastern Roman Empire in Paul's day, and Jerusalem the leading city of the Jews. What does the fact that Paul and his companions always went for the cities teach us about missionary strategy? Well, that's a great question, and it shows the wisdom and the strategic nature of the Apostle Paul. He wants to win as many people as he can to the gospel, and also we have behind it the wise leadership of the Holy Spirit. And so God's ways are not our ways, and he's not in any way averse to doing incredible work in some backwater or some tiny village somewhere with some insignificant person who ends up being very significant later. God does that kind of thing. But also there's a a basic simple wisdom to going to these centrally located massive centers of population. Everybody in that region is going to go there from time to time for market day, for example. Mm -hmm. Even those small hamlets and villages, the people will go in there. And so they're going to be able to reach them and the others as well. Now, Philippi has a, a marvelous history. It's situated in a certain place on a, at the end, the eastern end of a fertile plain. And uh, also in due time, the Romans built one of their most significant highways, the Ignatian Way, went through Philippi, uh, connecting effectively Rome with her eastern provinces. Um, and that would be Asia Minor and all the way down to Palestine. So anyone, any Roman legions or, or emissaries or messengers that were going from Rome to the easternmost provinces would go through Philippi. Also, historically, the Philippian population had supported a specific Roman general in his battle against another Roman general, and that Roman general won uh, in his battle. And so uh, the 
city of Philippi was was offered the lofty status of being a Roman colony and being and its all of its citizens were citizens of Rome. And so being a Roman citizen was a big deal. So all of that was very strategic and Paul goes in there. Now the word Philippi itself comes from Philip of Macedon, who was Alexander the Great's father and had gone a long way into basically handing his son a, 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 an amazingly powerful, well-trained Greek army that was ready to consolidate Greece, a bunch of city-states, into one massive fighting force that then, as we mentioned earlier, conquered the world. Mm. And so that's where the word Philippi comes from. It was Alexander the Great's father. And so Paul went there strategically um, so that he could preach the gospel to as many people as he could in that region. So it was consistent with Paul's pattern to go to cities, but his approach here is different from what he usually did once he got to a new city. What does that show us about Philippi? Well, it doesn't seem like there was a synagogue there. I mean, his home, uh, his basic thing always was to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. There don't seem to be any Jews there. And so even this, this woman, Lydia, there's no indication that she's Jewish. Um, she's a dealer of purple cloth. Maybe she is. I don't know. I just don't have any indication that she is. Um, and so that's just gives you insight into the fact that there wasn't a Jewish population and there wasn't a synagogue. I think the two go together. If there had been a Jewish population, there would have been a synagogue. I mean, all a synagogue is is effectively a Jewish house church, not a church, but a grouping of Jewish men that would gather together to read the Torah and to re renew their commitment to the laws of Moses, etc. There wasn't anything like that for Paul to go to. And so he goes to a, a place at a river uh, which had been identified as a place of prayer, and he hopes to go down and have some spiritual conversations with whoever gathers there. So this is one of the first instances where we see Paul engage in his ministry to the Gentiles right away upon arriving in a new place. Yeah. Who did Paul meet outside the city gate at the river, and what does this teach us about the role of women in redemptive history? Yeah, so he meets this woman, Lydia, and she's identified as a dealer in purple or purple cloth, and so that was a luxury item. Uh, the purple dye would come from a specific mollusk, I think, um, which was very expensive and difficult. Some uh, divers would go down and bring them up, and, and out of that would come the purple dye. And, and so if you were in purple, you were rich. And so if you're dealing purple cloth, you're going to be a wealthy merchant. And so mm. Lydia has a house slash household. So she has a whole bunch of people that are responsible to her. And she ends up being a base of operations. Um for Paul, and we're going to talk more about what happened with her spiritually. But to answer your question, God is willing to use women in very significant ways. And we see this very clearly, of course, in John chapter 4 with a Samaritan woman, mm. where um, Jesus is able to lead her to faith, and then she is able to go to her village and bring the whole Samaritan village out to see Jesus. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they listened to her and went out to meet with Jesus. And eventually they all come to faith in Christ as well. And they say to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said, but now we have heard and we believe ourselves that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Savior. And so, but it was the Samaritan woman at the well who was the key figure that brought people to Jesus. And so here again, we have Lydia and she's the first one. She is the one that is listening and it says she listened to the word of God from Paul and the Lord opened her heart, it says, to respond to Paul's message. We'll get into that. But uh, God is willing to use this wealthy, 
influential noblewoman, it seems, as a base of operations for the gospel. And even more specifically, she is a human being created in the image of God who is now up in heaven with Christ and mm -hmm. worshiping around the throne. And so that's the best of all. Andy, let's lean in a little bit to what you just mentioned, those three key figures that we see in verse 14. What does verse 14 teach us about God's role in the human heart at the moment of saving faith? Okay, so we have um, Paul's preaching. So that's what's going on. And so we know that that was orchestrated by God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit blocked Paul from going this way, blocked Paul from going that way, rendered him effectively motionless, he and his entourage, then gives him a vision of a man of Macedonia, come over and help us. The voyage goes across, they make their way to Philippi, they end up there, and there's Lydia. And Lydia was the point, not just Lydia, but the others as well. There's mm -hmm. more that happened in Philippi, but she's the beginning of it. And Paul is preaching the gospel. He's preaching Old Testament prophecies, the sacrificial system, the identity of Christ, the facts of the birth of Christ, virgin birth, uh, his sinless life, his miracles, some of his teachings. I don't know what all Paul said, but uh, everything that, that Lydia would need to believe in Jesus as her Lord and Savior as Paul is talking, it says, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Now, we know that this is the work of the Holy Spirit, but the language here is the Lord opened her heart. And so the Lord usually in the New Testament refers to Jesus, but that shouldn't trouble us at all because it said the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to back in verse seven. Hmm. The spirit of Jesus is the third person of the Trinity. Why is he therefore called the spirit of Jesus? Well, Jesus himself said the counselor, the Holy Spirit, would come and take from what is mine and make it known to you. So everything the spirit did is what, is what Jesus told him to do. And everything Jesus did is what the father told him to do. Everything comes ultimately from the father. And so we see the unity of the Trinity here. The spirit of Jesus is the one who wouldn't let Paul preach in another place. And therefore it is the Lord through the Holy Spirit that opened her heart. Now, what does that mean he opened her heart? Mm. Well, Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is like a water course in the hands of the Lord. He directs it whatever way he pleases. And so the Lord has influence over our hearts. He has the ability to turn our hearts or direct our hearts one way or another. And so the heart has a direction. You know, we could think of it like the points of a compass. The heart can move north or it can go south or east or west or north by northeast. The heart has a direction. And the Lord has power to turn our hearts in a certain direction without violating our wills. We're not robots. We're not like demon-possessed people that can't do anything but what the demon says to do. The Lord doesn't do that way. Instead, I think he directs our hearts by healing our hearts. Hmm. He shows us what is truly good and beautiful and noble and right and pure. He shows it to us in the haze. Uh, the satanic blindness is removed from us and we can see what we ought to do. We are attracted to what is beautiful and ultimately that's Jesus. And so the Lord directed her heart toward the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Jesus. And not only that, but the danger of her condition apart from Christ, hmm. that she was a sinner who needed to be saved. And that if she didn't flee to Christ, she would be swept away in judgment. And so all of these things are what the Lord did, revealing it to her, and she went in the right direction. What's the significance of Lydia's invitation to Paul and his companions in verse 15? Mm -hmm. And what does this teach us about house churches in the early church? All right. So uh, first of all, it says um, after she 
responded to Paul's message with her heart. She, The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. She, and it says, the members of her household were baptized. So we don't know what, who this would entail, but uh, this would be people who are living on her in her mansion or her house or her estate. We don't know how big it is, but she has a household. So she has people who are beholden her financially, uh, maybe even including slaves. Slavery was a big part of the Roman Empire. And so there'd be slaves and a lot of the early church were slaves. Actually, the overwhelming majority of them were. Um, but we do know that Everyone who gets added to the church does so through their own repentance and faith. Mm. Whether you are a noble woman or a noble man or a free man or merchant or a slave, male or female, doesn't matter. Everyone gets saved the same way. In Christ, there's neither male or female, junior Greek, slave or free, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, it says. What that means is everybody comes to faith in Christ the same way. There is no difference, Paul says in Romans. That's how people um, are saved. And so the members of, of Lydia's household also heard the message and believed. Now, my, my feeling is Paul met Lydia down at the river and Lydia listened to Paul down at the river and they continued their conversation probably back up to her house. And she probably spread a meal for him. Paul says in his teaching on Christian contentment in Philippians, I know what it is to have plenty and I know what it is to have nothing to eat. Mm. Well, my guess is with Lydia, it was more of the plenty <laughs> side. He, he had a good meal at her house. Mm. Meanwhile, the, the servants coming in serving the meal uh, were listening to what Paul was saying. And I could imagine Lydia kindly inviting them to sit and listen. And uh, that Paul uh, would share the gospel with them. Anyway, members of her household heard and believed. And then she and those believers were baptized. Now you have a church, basically. You have enough people to start a church. And so that uh, was started uh, in her household. She invited us, it says, to her home, not just to, to be there for one meal, let's say, or for an afternoon, but to stay there. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, please stay at my house. So this goes back to Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the disciples two by two. Um, whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. So that's going to be your base of of operation. Then later in Matthew 10, he says, whoever receives you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Whoever receives a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. So whoever receives an apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles, as the apostle to the Gentiles, receives the apostle to the Gentiles reward. Mm. So Lydia gets the same reward as Paul there in the city of Philippi. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So she says, we will be your base of operation. Stay with us. We'll meet your needs. Preach the gospel from here. What a powerful picture of God's ability to bring someone over from death to life and then out of this fledgling movement to grow and build his church. Yeah, and Lydia is also an example of a wealthy person who is a disciple and a follower of Christ. Just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you're going to hell. doesn't mean you have to divest yourself of all your riches. I think we could read something Luke writes or Jesus said in Luke's gospel, woe to the rich because you have all of your good things now, etc. There's a simplicity to those words that are pretty scary. Um, you read them, it's like, if I'm rich, I'm going to hell. Well, that's just not true. You have to balance that with other teachings. Mm. Um, woe to the uh, unbelieving rich who trust in their riches and are living for their riches and, and are stingy and not generous with their riches. Well, here's Lydia, a very wealthy woman, who's using her wealth and her estate and her condition to as a base of operations for the gospel. Andy, what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage that we've looked at today? Uh, it's beautiful to see this, and I think it's 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 very powerful to meditate. The, the, the star of this account here is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is orchestrating all of this. 
And so to me, I am very powerfully moved by meditating on how good the third person of the Trinity is at his job, how really expert he is at taking what Jesus did when he said, it is finished, the blood he shed on the cross. Mm -hmm. And when Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, there's an implied, into your hands I commit this work. Into your hands I commit this blood that I have now shed. Do something with this. Mm. Spread it. And the Father said, I will. And he does that by sending the Spirit. And the Spirit does not fail in what he does. And he goes after the elect in every community, in every generation. And he will not fail to get the job done. He knows how to orchestrate the messengers to block them in one direction and move them in another direction. He knows how to open the hearts of lost people and help them to see the beauty of Christ and of the gospel. He knows how to orchestrate this whole thing. And so to me, that's the real central message here is the wisdom and the power of the Holy Spirit in taking the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Well, this has been episode 32 in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode 33 entitled, Triumph of Grace in a Philippian Jailer, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 40. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.